Maxime Fatif is an open source veteran who is well known in the microservices world. He spent decades architecting mission critical systems at Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Amazon. Max designed Cadence at Uber and spun it out into Temporal. Before Uber, Max worked at AWS on simple queue service and simple workflow service that later inspired Temporal. Temporal is an open source, distributed, and scalable workflow orchestration engine capable of running millions of workflows. We'll learn a lot more about what he's done in this conversation. Welcome, Max. You know, obviously you've got a company to run, right? You've got any number of trends that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but it's been a pretty crazy year in technology. So I'm a little curious what's attracting your attention and, and what's on your mind. We as a company have pretty clear path. It's clear that there is big unknown in front of us right now in software engineering in terms of this new AI stuff. That part requires us to watch it and be aware that the changes are coming. You cannot just ignore them. So that is certainly something I'm looking at and at least consider. I think it will, at least in short and medium term, it will be actually a huge boost for us. But certainly long term, we don't understand where we will end up in 10, 15 years because this technology can completely change the world. But in medium term, I think we are actually very well positioned because if you think about it, these technologies will generate code, but they want to generate business logic code. They don't want to generate code which deals with all the type of issues which we are dealing with. And so we are actually a very good target platform for code generation for these things. We already good target platform generation for low-code, no-code solutions. And this is I see it's just another low-code, no-code solution, just a little bit higher level. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I had the opportunity to talk with John Rose, who's the CTO of Dell, back in 2019. They have a technology advisory council, which I serve on. And one of the things that he said that kind of blew all of our minds and now seems obvious in hindsight, he said, 10 years from now, we're going to see a 1,000x more data transactions, and 99% of those interactions are going to be AI-driven. And now we have this shape of what are the agents going to look like, right? So many people are using GPT to build agents. But as I keep adapting to use GPT and Langchain and all these large language model and transformer-centric tools in my day-to-day work, I see a lot of them are going to workflow. And they don't benefit from building their own workflow engine. They're going to benefit from participating in a workflow process as an application. So many of the things we want to do is have a conversation with these agents that seems natural to us and then gets things done that are pretty much all long-running processes. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that space. Exactly. I think that's why I'm pretty excited about that because it's not like our company is not an AI company, at least right now. And I think we welcome everyone who's doing AI company these days to look at Temporal as a practical backbone for executing those workflows and the long-running processes or whatever AI generates. I think there is very good synergy there. Yeah, AI is going to need a ton of infrastructure. In that context, one of the things that's fascinating about Temporal is what brilliant use Temporal makes of data. And it's a fascinating community of temporal developers because they're using an open source language, they're using open source engines sitting on top of generally open source infrastructure, right, a range of different databases. And in that, temporal's turning data into value. You're trading space for time in a way to give the developer a pretty easy way to take care of what they care about. And in, in turn, you use a lot of infrastructure in order to make their jobs easy. The open source nature of it always brings me back to the question that led us to start this podcast, which is, as a practitioner, as an expert, as a founder, as a CEO in this arena, what does open source data mean to you? I'm probably the worst expert on open source data. 
because I did open source, but I always did open source middleware. I didn't have much exposure to actual open source data besides general amateur there. I certainly don't envy people who deal with that because I'm pretty sure it's much harder than open source software. As somebody who has to deal with all the compliances these days and customer API data and answering questions about that and seeing stories about that even anonymized data can be actually pretty dangerous. I can clearly see that people who are trying to create these free data sets have an extremely hard problem on their hands. And especially with all of this AI stuff, which can get patterns out of even very anonymized data, I can see that it will become even worse. So yeah, I kind of stayed on this other side of the fence when I do open source, but open source software and open source software, I think is very clear cut. It is either open source or not, which is actually unfortunate that most companies are moving off the open source these days. Uh, so far, we trying to maintain this clear open source with MIT license and as open as you can and be, still being able to monetize for our SaaS offering. Yeah, the licensing component does seem to be in a serious transition. There seem to be some companies that are passing off source available licenses as if they're open source in order to complement their service. But you're taking a really principled stance and saying, we're continuing to build open source and we offer you open source as a service. I'm really curious and if you're open to it, talking a bit about the principles that you have behind that that are keeping you on this very hard-driving open source path when there are compromises abounding. When we started the project, my goal was just every developer use this technology and use what we call now durable execution approach to building these distributed applications. And we didn't even plan to have a company because we were working at Uber at the time. The reason we started the company is that we just realized that if you want to make it worldwide and like success and every developer know about that, it takes more than just a project or like with 10, 15 people, you need pretty significant investment. And the only way to get that these days would be VC money, at least if you want to grow it fast. And also SaaS offering is required if you want to do wide adoption. Not everybody wants to run backend. So it was pretty clear for us that we want to start a company to make this open source more available. Obviously, as a, having a company and taking VC money, we need to generate revenue. So there is no way around that. But I think we are super lucky in just in timing. Because if we started five, 10 years ago, the only option would be to have this open core model when you have very limited open source solution. And then you try to create this kind of enterprise version of that. And then you do on-prem. And just this problem inherently very controversial. It's not because we are so smart, it's just because at this time it was possible. Is just saying, no, we will do open source, it will be clear open source library, very feature-rich, and we will do SaaS offering for the backend. And there is no like open core model because there is no enterprise version, and it means that we don't need to keep features from the open source version. And the other thing is that Temporal simplifies your programming experience a lot, right? So you write much less code, but it's also 100% lock-in. If you wrote your application using Temporal, the only way you can migrate to other, any other technology, there is no alternative. You practically need to throw away all your code and implement it from scratch using much worse approaches. So very non-fun uh, situation. Also, Temporal is used for a lot of mission-critical workloads. It's very common yes. for us, uh, practically the mo most important company workload runs on us. Right, a lot of examples of those companies doing that. But what it means is that companies certainly scared to bet their future on a technology which is owned by some commercial entity. Without open source and like fully featured open source is powerful enough to be migrated from, I think yeah. we wouldn't be able to have a lot of conversations we are having about our commercial offering right today. So I think it just makes practical sense. 
Also, it keeps us honest because we are not going to do anything bad just because we always know that anyone can just go and cannot start offering that as a service as well. But at the same time, it means that our service should be so much better than open source in terms of when you use that and it provides such a smooth experience that it's your own. That is, I think, the most important point. Other thing is that we are targeting developers. And developers like open source. So, so target develops with proprietary solution. I think if any library which requires proprietary solution would be very hard these days. It's not like 90s anymore. Because for us, it's awareness is the most important thing. Because most developers still don't know about us. And we want to make sure that we're at least aware about temporal and power. And not doing it with not open source solution, I think, wouldn't do that. And the other thing is just the practical. Most companies have a list of blessed licenses. So even if you take MIT license, copy it word to word and call it temporal license, most developers wouldn't be able even to try it if they're within a corporation without talking to their lawyers. How many developers would like to talk to their lawyers and get approval for some license? And I think it's just very practical. If you have something with MIT license, just the ability for developer to try it out and play with that increases exponentially. So I think it's just both good business and at the same time, I think it's just good for everyone, including, again, for us and also for the community. And there's still a very large companies running on open source without paying us. Companies like Datadog, right, Airbnb, Coinbase, they are still not our customers. Obviously, I want to have them as a customer one day, but they are running this in production successfully and as open source. And I think this proves that it's not a toy. Yeah, it's a really beautiful answer. You've keyed on a bunch of themes I would describe as harmony. Your business is in harmony with your users, is in harmony with your technology, which is in harmony with people's ability to adopt and operate it. You put it very, very well. It's like alignment. The whole company be aligned with the users and never kind of play against them. The same thing for sales. For example, we only charge per consumption. And our salespeople are only compensated when there is actual consumption. There is no this, oh, buy these credits and like forget about them. They're compensated only if you have actual run rate, actual production. And I think it completely aligns our sales force with our users. And I think it creates a lot of goodwill because people clearly see that we're not trying to play any games yeah. because we are just super interested in their success. That's really cool. So Max, one of the things that you were doing is coming into this space with a lot of focus on what does it mean to be a deep practitioner building infrastructure? What would you need to rely on? And building cadence at Uber so that you could manage Uber's large-scale workflows. You are surrounded by open-source technologies. You probably wouldn't have accepted a non-open-source technology. More importantly, that was the endpoint of a lot of mastery that you developed over time around workflow. That workflow could be a programming model. It's not simply a set of pub-sub-queues and making the developer do a lot of gymnastics in order to get their environment configured properly and get their applications flowing properly. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about the origin story for Cadence and maybe take us all the way back into the time that you spent two decades ago at Amazon building their first workflow and messaging services. It's kind of interesting because I'm the guy who says Temporal can re replace a bunch of queues, but most of my time I, I was building queues and messaging solutions because at Amazon I was in the team which owned Amazon internal pop-up systems. And I worked on a few versions of them, and then I helped come up with the design of the replicated storage for messaging. And the whole backend of Amazon ran on that for a very long time. And it was well before Kafka was conceived. And later, Simple Queue service took that. They wanted to upgrade their backend, which was written very fast for the first version, and they needed something more robust, and they just adopted the engine which we wrote. 
So I think Simple Queue Service still uses that design and behind the scenes. The other funny bit is the reason I joined Uber because they actually hired me to write Kafka replacement. Wow. Uh, so they didn't hire me to write uh, workflow systems or whatever. Back then, it was a version like six or seven. Uh, Kafka at large scale at Uber just couldn't keep up the all sort of durability requirements it had. And we practically wrote open source system. I think me and Samar, as a co-founder of Temporal, we were both tech leads for that project. And we wrote a project, an open source project called Sheremy. It's still out there. You can find an interesting blog post about that. Sheremy became relatively successful within Uber. We had over 60 teams that are using it at some point. But for all sort of non-technical reasons, what happened is we lost funding. And five engineers couldn't compete with 20-plus SREs, which were running Kafka back then. And Kafka also improved a lot. It's not like Kafka 8 certainly was a huge step up from Kafka 7. And by then, the kind of bleeding problem with Kafka kind of disappeared, and this project kind of fizzled. Besides, I still think that it had a lot of interesting ideas, which are super useful, and we might resurrect it one day. But uh, Cadence itself grew out of how would I build this QS if I had clean slate? So I kind of build it like that. So it, uh, assumption of that you would have very, very large clusters, potentially thousands of nodes if necessary. And then every time you have such a large cluster, you need to do a lot of background jobs to do like scans, cleanups, moving things around and so on. And when we need to do background jobs, uh, Samar came to me and said, we did simple workflow at Amazon because after SQS, I was working on the simple workflow service. And we know how to do background jobs. Let's implement some very simple version of simple workflow. Okay, it uh, sounds weird. And we just decided to do that. It was initially backend for Cadence project. But in the meantime, as Cadence project was kind of going down because management kind of cut it, we managed to uh, allocate some resources. It was kind of a scant work project. It wasn't Uber came to us and said, build workflow system. But at least uh, management was actually kind enough and they trusted enough to actually give us time, almost half a year, and even, uh, I think, a couple additional engineers, we were able to launch the first version of Cadence project, which was predecessor of Temporal, kind of independently. And then we found a couple of customers within Uber, then found more customers, then found more customers, and then we started to get real funding. And I certainly think back then Uber was such an interesting place that you could have such a project practically written just because you decided to do so. It's like a startup, right? You were able to get actual adoption, they would fund you, and they would support you. That's why I think so many open source projects came out of Uber, because they actually were very good at that. And so I'm super grateful to Uber for like letting us do that. We started to grow, and within three years, we had over 100 uh, use cases running on, uh, on Cadence. So a fairly spectacular scale, too. Can you talk a little bit about the scale that led you to reconsider this as requiring both simplicity and a programming model? Because classically... PubSub is its own way of thinking about the world, got events and queues and you're writing listeners and it's usually a bit orthogonal to how most backend code works. So coming at this both from a lot of experience of what the infrastructure needs to be, but advancing that and saying, hey, there's a much better programming model. Talk a little bit about the scale that led you to think about that programming model and maybe talk to us a little bit about the programming model itself. Now, these are a little bit orthogonal things. Programming model by itself and the scale. The reason we thought about scale, because the first incarnation of this idea was created at Amazon as a simple workflow service. But I didn't come up with the programming model immediately. I wrote three or four versions of different frameworks to actually program on top of the service. And first iterations were more traditional ones, state machines, more like step functions. We didn't have DAG, but it was more like sequence condition, object, pretty standard stuff. Everybody has been doing it for like the uh, last 30 years. So it's not like I've dreamed it overnight. But at some point, I kind of realized that this is such a 
not nice way to write these things. And the core abstraction would be the, what we call durable execution. And for people who are not initiated, <laughs> the basic idea is super simple. You write code and we guarantee this code keeps running, not process, but actual like function, keeps running in presence of failures. So if you have function which calls free APIs and it crashes in the middle of like after calling first API, we will reconstruct its state in exactly the same state, including all variables, and it will continue executing. And if it's blocked on an API and this process crashes, it will reconstruct in the same state, we will be blocked on that API. So it means that you can make like a RPC call which takes five days or week or five months, and it's still the same RPC call. And then also it means that all variables are always durable because they should be stored because otherwise you wouldn't be able to reconstruct their state. So you need to talk to database explicitly. So as an example I give is imagine you want to do customer subscription. So charge customer once a month, send email once a month. And imagine you need to do it to large scale for million customers. In Temporal, what you would do, you would write a for loop, sleep 30 days. Obviously, calculation should be more complex uh, in real life. And then a charge customer send email, and it will be a loop. And this function would run for a year. And uh, imagine doing that any other way. And you can have, like as I said, hundreds of millions of those running in parallel. And that is kind of the core idea of the programming model. We certainly iterated a lot on that. Uh, first version was a simple workflow. It actually wasn't complete because Probably you never heard about simple workflow before. Most people didn't because this programming model never was fully finalized. But I think when we came to Uber, I think we found much better way to do that, especially from asynchronous became synchronous. And then we reduced a lot of kind of dependencies. Code generation, we don't need any of that. You just include a library and you can use it. And then because we build it as open source backend, then we're going back to scale because we kind of built an AWS service before, more than one, like simple queue service, AWS. Samar, actually, the co-founder of Temporal, after Amazon went back to Microsoft, he was there before. And he was the guy who was the tech lead of the Azure service bus, so also messaging. So we had like this experience running large-scale distributed systems. And at least my experience is what I saw. Most of these type of workflow-ish orchestration systems, they're done backwards. People come from experience. They think about the model DAG, like JSON. They implement that, and they implement on top of one database, and then they start growing, becomes popular, and then they need to start scaling that. And you cannot add scaling as an afterthought. And the reason I think Cadiz and Temporal are so different, because we initially already had experience building this large-scale system, and we are building from scratch something which will scale indefinitely. So far, we weren't able to find a database which we couldn't saturate. We ran 200 node Cassandra clusters. We ran our own backend, which is even more powerful. We ran a million updates per second. And the actual cluster itself always can be configured to saturate database 100%. There is a talk designing the workflow engine from first principles. If you Google it under my name, you will find it. I gave it at Facebook. They have this at scale conference. And I gave the talk, which kind of explains some basic ideas behind the design and architecture of that. But yeah, we kind of build it from scratch to be infinitely scalable. And then uh, together with a better programming model, and then together with being open source, and then also running the production at Uber, all these things together allowed us to get external adoption. And it wasn't like external adoption from small companies. We One of the first adopters were HashiCorp, right? Airbnb, Coinbase. Why? Because again, because we were running at Uber at large scale, because we had previous experience at these large companies, they trusted us with... Uh, open source product, which actually wasn't popular back then. It's a brilliant model, too, because for those who aren't closely associated with workflow or this general domain, this is often in history was called the distributed two-phase commit, being able to do long-running 
transactions, long running processes that can do multiple things, recover gracefully. Really one of the hardest problems in computer science when you look at distributed systems and to come at it almost with the sort of Alexander, the story of the Gordian knot, everybody's trying to unknot this very complicated knot that's been attached to a temple and there's a bull in front of the temple and nobody's ever been able to solve it. And then Alexander walks up and he takes a sword and slices through the knot and says, I have untied your knot for you. So it was really bold to come in with a programming model approach and then to be able to combine it with, as you said, infinite scalability. That's why I mentioned that you've effectively very cleverly traded space for time as the cost of storage has gone down as the cost of compute has gone down, as the cost of networking has gone down, you've created a really neat trade-off by storing more and more information so that you can create more simplicity in the program model, which gives the companies themselves scalability. There is one maybe small point there is we really can be as efficient as a handcrafted code in a lot of cases. It's not that we are saying, oh, we'll be less efficient than, for example, something you build yourself. We also recently added some features because one thing is that we, we used the word workflow a few times here, and I usually don't like that word with this because any engineer who hears workflow, he just checks out. I don't want to even hear about that, right? And Temporal is much more than workflow. It replaces workflow engines, and it can be implemented to business-level flows and all sorts of other things, but it can implement things which you would never think is a workflow. For example, lifecycle. I just showed the lifecycle of the customer. It can sit there more like durable op actor, right, type things. So it yes. can do a lot of other things. With recent changes, we can actually use it for very fast transactions. The idea is that even if you handcraft that, you will need exactly the same number of database updates as we do. But you still have the power, for example, recovery and also doing compensations. So, for example, money payments. If you need to press a button and get paid, uh, we can execute this very fast. And then if something fails, we can execute compensations in background. And it will be as fast as hand-coded solutions. So it's not we are trading anything. The reality is you're not trading anything. You're just getting benefits. Obviously, when people come to us, we don't care about durability, we don't care about guarantees, then you don't need to use Temporal. Because Temporal is about ensuring that whatever piece of code you're running will complete eventually, or you will run compensation if it's not possible for business reasons. So practically forward recovery, backward recovery, we do all these things automatically. It yeah. gives you a better programming model. And if you say, no, 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 I don't care about that. If my request fails, I don't want to do any compensations, then why would you use Temporal? So in this case, we say no. But if you, every time you care about durability, guarantees, and reliability, I would say it, you at least need to very seriously consider it. Yeah. And with a very wide field of use from the instantaneous to transactions that might take a year or more. We'll talk a little bit about the use cases that you are most excited about going forward. You've got a lot of experience in seeing microservices have changed over the last decade. You're probably seeing a ton of what we used to call things like orchestration and choreography, which are complicated to do, but incredibly valuable because they represent a lot of leverage if you can pull them off. A lot of this stuff has all kind of made its way into what the Temporal platform does now, what Temporal open source is used for, and the expanding field of use that we see as the communities take it forward. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the use cases that you see that you're excited about and how those have drawn you to support more and more languages, because I think you have an incredibly active community that is expanding the field that Temporal can be applied to every day. Interesting part about Temporal is that it's so it's a new programming model, and it's a very generic one. It's practically just guarantees of durability and uh, execution. So you can apply it almost everywhere. You can start from infrastructure provisioning. For example, a tuber restarting every box to upgrade kernel version is a workflow. So if you have like you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of boxes, you need to restart them reliably. How do you do that? So that is a workflow. 
any deployment, right? A provisioning new clusters, provisioning new practically data centers, provisioning new whatever availability zones in the Amazon. This is a bunch of workflows. Then we go down application deployment actually is a workflow because it's multi-step thing. CI/CD pipeline, for example, Netflix rewrote the internal version of Spinnaker on top of Temporal because they just need scale and next version they just wanted to do that. So CI/CD pipeline is a very common example. Then you go back up the stack, you go data pipelines and machine learning pipelines, or all the data stuff. There are a lot of startups and companies rewriting their data pipelines on top of Temporal. And then you go up, you see payments. So practically uh, Uber replaced all the payment infrastructure with Cadence. It was based on Kafka and so like st- kind of standard type thing. And they replaced it. And unfortunately, they didn't publish video, but it was public meetup. And they practically replaced everything as just workflows. And they reported a lot of good benefits from latency, availability, less errors and outages. And then you go up to stack any business process. And whatever business process is for your company, right? If you are Airbnb, it probably will be rental, right? If you are HashiCorp, it will be your cloud. Customer onboarding, deboarding for banks, right? For example, every bank has just a bunch of workflows, right? If you think about it. All sorts of things. We are certainly super excited about financial sector as a company in terms of a revenue point of view, because we get a lot of traction right now in fintech and big banks. Because again, any big bank or fintech company is just 99% workflows, like business flows. And we are the best technology to support it reliably. And there is a lot, a lot of movement to the cloud, to the kind of these distributed systems. And we've seen quite a few who did it naive way, or just let's use events, let's use services, use use queues. And we come there and they're already suffering big time because the architecture become very unwindy, very fast. And we actually can bring order there and they're super happy about that. That's really cool. So effectively, any API-driven system that's arbitrarily complex is something that you're building, you're bringing determinism and recoverability. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in modern business, whether it's at the business layer or whether it's down at the infrastructure layer, is not just understanding what's happening, but how do I go back a step? If something fails, how do I have a graceful recovery? And often that's where I've found the science and computer science is in finding what the bugs were in this very arcane race condition, which, you know, maybe cost somebody millions of dollars and recovering the mistakes. So bringing determinism to highly complex environments is an incredibly powerful promise. And as you just laid out, there are many, many layers of increasingly higher scale complexity that we deal with, let alone getting into the world of large language models, AI and ML, which seem like they're increasing the weight on all of the lower infrastructure components by a factor of 10 or more. One thing you mentioned, we are new programming model, but programming model for existing language. We didn't invent new language. We don't have any kind of configuration based like JSON, YAML language. You just write code in your preferred language. That's why we think you should be have SDKs as many languages we can support. And right now we support Java, Go, TypeScript, PHP, and Python. And we are about to release alpha version of our .NET SDK, so you can do C Sharp and others, and obviously things like F Sharp. And then uh, we are working on Ruby as well. Uh, there is a Coinbase contributed uh, Ruby SDK, which was contributed uh, as open source, but we, now we are kind of standardizing it with all other, other SDKs. And uh, also people ask for Rust SDK. Given that we already have Rust library, which is used as backend for most of these SDKs, one day I think we will have Rust SDK. We want to try to meet developers where they are, so in their language. So, And also, if you have multi-language environment, this, they can interoperate. So you absolutely can have flows of business processes which run across multiple languages. And you can absolutely have one activity in 
TypeScript and be called from Go workflow, and then it can call uh, Java. We have, I think, polyglot sample when you have like five different SDKs to, I think, make one game or some process. So uh, this is a, a very, very common scenario as well. That's really cool because, of course, complex environments that have scale also have human scale, lots of different teams moving at different speeds, using different languages. So having a polyglot surface area for the program model is key. One of the coolest things that I've seen is that you have now got a process effectively to engage communities of language to come and contribute what they know so that you can get an idiomatically correct experience against their language environment to the temporal programming model. One of the things we were talking about earlier was the applications of all of this new weight of machine learning applications and infrastructure to these types of problems. So I'm curious to get your take on how temporal is being used for ML workloads right now and What's drawing your curiosity where you'd like to see that going? I think about this way. At least I'm not expert at all in ML. But what I saw how people use it is these models and whatever they're doing, they are not like simple sequence of steps. These things have life cycle. You have a model, you need to train it, retrain it, you need to deploy it, you need to monitor performance, you need to roll it back, retrain on new data. So there is very complex kind of life cycle of things and multiple things and physical things and logical things and so on and so on. And temporal is because it has this notion of kind of workflows which can run for a very long time and handle external events, you can treat them as durable actor. And they are very good to implement a life cycle. For example, you can have an object per model or an object per whatever and let this object handle all the kind of events like, oh, new data came in, notify this object, this object will go and retrain it. Or it will run an activity to periodically check the status. So you can have end-to-end life cycle implemented fully in temporal and not like as people do with other solutions, when you have a lot of kind of pipelines which you kind of stitch together with cron jobs and like some other kind of duct tape and so on. And here you can actually have like one unified solution. So a lot of start, like ML startups like us because they can have a unified solution end to end. As complex as your life cycles are, you can absolutely support that. I think this is where the power of Temporal is. Also, we, we have things like, oh, you can route specific activity using specific host, for example, a specific process. So when you need to pull these like, expensive models to a host and cache them there and make sure that a process happened on that host, we have built-in support for that out of the box. So a lot of kind of this ability to route tasks to specific hosts, being able to keep data inside a workflow so you don't need to create complex state machines, and then being able to handle external events and react to them. So it's kind of pretty rich programming model. It's also very dynamic. Because, like, for example, if you say something like Airflow, it's a nice technology, but it's very simplistic because it has, like, this fixed DAG. And they are trying to kind of change that, but in the core of it is, like, it's very simple DAG. And you cannot do things like, oh, one activity returns number of partitions, then you run, like, for example, subflow per partition. You need to practically generate this DAG. In, in Temporal, it will be, like, as simple as, okay, activity returns number of partitions, then we have for loop, which starts things per partition. Other thing is DSLs. For example, people for CI/CD. A lot of solutions, CICD, you have this high-level kind of description of your pipeline in YAML, JSON. And then you can go and interpret that using temporal workflow and then run it. So if you have custom DSL, temporal is the best technology to implement that and run it at scale. Because you need to run an engine. All you need to write is like a workflow code, which will interpret that, and it's pretty straightforward. So that's why low-code, no-code companies and in CICD pipelines and all these ML pipelines, which have their own DSLs, a very good fit for Temporal because we kind of take care of hot stuff, which is running these things at scale and reliably, and they can focus on their user experience. It sounds like a really wide range of applicability to the core problems you have in, in ML, which really have to do with data engineering. At least 50% of the problems in ML that I hear people complain about are arising from 
flaky pipelines or just the human toil that goes with doing recovery. Kron is not a great system for detecting failures and rolling back, but being able to have an intelligent system that's wrapped around that could transform the toil involved and get people to go a lot faster. And with MLOps, all of the sequencing, chaining, and again, bringing determinism, because that's still a pretty big challenge in the field of MLOps practice. Can I get the same thing again? How do I go faster knowing that I can retry things in a sensible way. So getting to the end of our conversation, and I'm really grateful for the time, one of the things that I got to do a, a year and a half or so ago was I was being interviewed for a podcast and the, the interviewer said, I'd like to give you a chance to answer a question that nobody ever asked you, but they should have because so many of us, we get shoehorned into one role, we're seen one way, but of course, like humans are complex, right? We've got lots of different sides. So I'm curious to know if there's a question that, that you wanted to be asked on, on any topic that, that you should have been. I think one thing which is interesting is that how different probably my experience of living and working in America is from experiences of people who were born here is that I think I'm much more positive because I, I, I'm Russian, actually, and I, I grew up in Moscow, but I left in 95. I actually lived in Brazil, and my computer science degree is from Brazil uh, in Rio de Janeiro. So I'm super grateful to the University of Rio de Janeiro for giving me actually pretty good computer science education. But coming to America, I certainly appreciate this country probably more than people who grew up here because I can compare. And I know a lot of things are going on, and not all of them are positive, and there are bad changes and so on, but... In general, I think things are much better. And one thing is just proving that, think about Temporal. You have two engineers, one from Russia, another from Pakistan, because Samar is my co-founder. He's from Pakistan, right? Yeah. And coming from with nothing to this country, practically. And now we have the company, we have everything. Obviously, it's a work of a lot of people. It's not just us. But again, we still were able to kind of make this happen. And 100%, because there is such a strong support system, if you have something of value, and that I think it's amazing. And I think people don't realize how easy to do these things. If you Again, you need to have something. Obviously, if you don't have anything to offer, it's hard. But if I understood it before, I would start probably my first startup probably 15 years ago. Because even back then, I was doing these queuing systems. Again, as I said, it was like well before Kafka was even conceived. And it was very would be very widely applicable, this type of thing. But I never even thought about that, at least at the, like concretely. I think being open and being able to just leverage this huge support network, which uh, the whole America is, I think it's amazing. There's so much that natives can take for granted, right? All the rights that they enjoy, they were born into. And there's so much more power and hope and gratitude, right? So I think your experience is a powerful example of what makes this industry a great industry, what makes California such an interesting place to build startups. My parents are both immigrants as well. My dad came from South India with $20 in his pocket, literally on a boat to get his master's degree from Berkeley in chemical engineering, doing a lot of computer science to do his chemistry back in those days. And my mom came from Australia. But when you're not born to it, everything is amazing. Everything is opportunity. And I love John F. Kennedy's famous book describing America as defined by waves of immigration, right? There's something about being able to bring in new generations of people with hope and optimism and a belief in what the country can be and just psyched and grateful for the infrastructure that waves of immigrants have built for us before. Going to that, like obviously, it's super upsetting what's going on with immigration right now for people with education. Like I, we have a bunch of guys from India working for us and it's just insane how hard for them. I came in the end of 90s, so I got my green card within three years. And what people have to go through just to get a green card is just insane. 
and they are working here, pay, paying taxes and everything. This area of America now upsets me. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're listening to this podcast and you care about these issues, this is a great time to write to your representatives and your senators and let them know this is about creating a better future for the country by bringing in people who want to be here and build it together with us. So hopefully you'll, you'll make your voice heard. Well, Max, I'm incredibly grateful for your generosity of time and your thoughts. And it's easy to underestimate what you've brought to bear today, but you have actually solved collaboratively with your co-founders, with an open source community, with a set of folks at Uber, one of the longest standing, hardest problems in computer science. And I think we'll be a better industry the more that we can adapt to this new way of thinking, right? The programming model that the problem is how we've been conceiving of it for the developer user at the start, rather than conceiving of it as a bottoms up interesting distributed system computer science problem. Can we fit it to people's cognition and not just fit it to computation? So with that, I know you will have inspired a lot of folks. And I'm wondering if there's a, a piece of advice or a resource that you would offer to people who are on their journey, you know, either thinking about building something new like you've done or excited about being part of complex distributed systems. Anything that comes to mind, I think our audience would be grateful for. I think one thing is that there are two types, I think, of people in engineering in general, like generalists and specialists. I think my experience shows that being specialist kind of makes sense and focusing on one problem. One of my former colleagues from Amazon, when he learned that uh, me and Samara starting the company around a simple workflow idea, said that uh, we are most stubborn people here we've seen. And it doesn't make sense what we are doing. And I found that it's uh, hilarious, but it kind of makes sense because... Think about it. People always ask about what's the price of idea, right? Like idea versus execution. Think about simple workflow idea was out in the open for over 10 years. And then we started Cadence and for three years it was in the open. And then we started the company three years ago. This idea been in the open for a very long time. And again, nobody was able to execute on that and have a vision and being able to kind of get to the point when, where it is right now. And again, we are very far from where we want to be because again, most people still didn't know about Timpo, still don't understand it, still don't know the value of this new programming model. Please, if you're listening to that, please go to our website, portal.io, check it out, and try to at least get the idea. And again, if you understand it and don't like it, I've never seen that, but please do. You don't have to use it, but at least understand what it provides. I think this is the most important thing. And the other thing, we have conference in September. We call it Replay, so it will be referenced on our website. So last conference, we had people who came there without having zero idea what Temporal is. I had dinner conversation with people and they're like, oh, like we came here to just check it out. And there are people from like pretty interesting companies. They just saw the community, they saw the inspiration and it was a very, very kind of gratifying experience. So please check out and like join now. We're also looking for papers. So it's not only about Temporal. If you have distributed system background, you care about res resiliency and so on, we have a lot of tracks. So please join our community and maybe even present at our conference. Fantastic. Max, thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck. I don't think you're going to need a lot of luck because you have a lot of experience and you have a lot of stubbornness. <laughs> That's probably going to take care of most of what you need. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Very nice conversation. I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro, to cover her takeaways from the conversation. Audra, I thought that conversation with Max was pretty inspiring and it expanded my mind as I thought about the range of scale and the range of applications for what you might overlook as a mere workflow programming model. But it turns out almost everything that we care about doing in business is workflow at some level. 
what stood out to you? You're so right. And what stood out to me was the multi-language environment that Temporal offers and that the fact that they stress the durable execution that Max mentioned, which is writing code that keeps running in the presence of failures. And then getting further into the ML side of things in terms of what those companies are looking for, you know, he mentioned that these companies want that end-to-end life cycle with training, like, for example, when new data comes in. And you mentioned the MLOps industry and how bringing determinism into that field is definitely a much-needed thing that Temporal is doing. Yeah, there's a lot of infrastructure ahead to make ML a lot easier. And I think Temporal is a great example of that infrastructure. I also love that he talked about his gratitude for the country and the sense that we can have a lot of opportunities and we can spin businesses out of other businesses. You and I have now interviewed folks from LinkedIn, from Temporal, from many other internet scale companies. Cassandra, which Datastax is on point for these days, came out of Facebook. So all these internet scale companies seem to have created a culture of innovation that was paired with entrepreneurialism. Like, yeah, you want to go and turn that into a company? Go for it. Most of them have met with very, very good results. And that's kind of the burgeoning abundance that we see in machine learning these days. That's a really good point. Exactly how we took cadence into temporal. And it's always nice to hear people be human and on the show, right? So talking about the engineers that they have at Temporal, one of them coming from Pakistan with nothing and his appreciation for this country and the vast network that we have in this industry. I really enjoyed that conversation kicking off season five. Thanks, Audra. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for listening to us today. And if you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. I'd like to offer a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, our producer, Alexa Minter, and program management, Vita Miori and Kyle Ruska, for audio and visual engineering, Callan Turnbull and Yaroslav Zukarchenko, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And of course, the Datastacks team, like Gianna Pascal, Arlene Goh, and Lauren Gall. Thank you again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data.